Hi there, and welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. My name is Patrick Francie, and I'm the CEO of the Real Estate Investment Network. In addition to being a business owner, I'm also a real estate investor, I'm a coach, I'm a husband, I'm a very proud grandfather. And along with that, I'm also committed to stretching beyond what I've already achieved and of living a fulfilled life by continuing to make a positive difference in the world. I invite you to join me to listen in on the Everyday Millionaire podcast as I interview and have conversations with seemingly ordinary individuals who have achieved some pretty extraordinary results, whether it be in their life, in their business, in real estate. And it's here where I'm going to delve into the details of their journey, along with the paths they've traveled to get where they are today, and as importantly, where they intend to go in the future. My guests are here to inspire. They're here to help you learn by talking about what's real for them, both in their wins and in their challenges, from the life and the lifestyle they live to the person they had to become along the way in creating and building their financial futures for themselves and their families. Before I begin this episode, I'll start by first thanking you for listening in and for your support and the feedback you provide us on the show, as well as to ask you to please continue to send your comments, your suggestions, or your questions directly to me at CEO at RainCanada.com. That is CEO at R-E-I-N-Canada.com. And if you're inclined, please share this podcast with your friends, your family, and with people you know, or perhaps even people you don't know. Rate the show and comment on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or whatever platform you happen to use to listen in. And while you're at it, please follow me on the Everyday Millionaire Facebook page. So thanks again for the feedback you provide us. It's definitely appreciated. Okay, let's get on with this show and have a conversation with today's guest. My guest today, Emil Stutum, is co-founder and North American director at Performance by Design. He is experienced in kinesiology, neuro-linguistic programming, teaching and behavioral sciences, as well as having spent 12 years as a semi-professional Aussie rules footballer. Emil began his corporate journey in Canada with his Toronto-based company, Aussie X, as seen on Dragon's Den Season 6, which we're going to talk about, where he implemented an early version of his performance by design system under the guidance and mentorship of Gerald Murphy, now a co-founder with him at Performance by Design, or PBD. The impact it had on his team was enormous, empowering the businesses to grow more than 30% year over year, growing its offerings and locations to expand and become X Movement Inc. We have got a lot of ground to cover in this conversation. Without any further delay, let's get this show on the road. Emil Stadham, welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. So great to have you on the show. G'day, Pat. Good to be here, mate. Been looking forward to this for a while. Hi. Okay, okay. So, you know, first thing is obvious is you talk funny. What? <laughs> yep. What's with that? I'm, uh, I'm an Aussie, um, but I've been living here actually for on and off for about 22 years now. I yeah. can't believe it. Yeah. But I, I think, and my mates reckon my accent's getting worse. I'm not sure if it's a planned thing. You get older, you get lazier, but um, as Aussies, we, we tend to shorten our words. We tend to use slang, and I think by the time you get to sort of your mid-20s and 30s, it's very embedded, and then you get just lazier as you get older. So um, 
but I'll, I will I will do my best to speak at a speed and a rate that will be able to be <laughs> comprehended by the audience. I love that background. I've you know I I know other Aussies and I've never uh, they've never given me that whole story about how that goes. So uh, thanks for sharing that. So no uh, you know Emil, at the end of the day, you know we're here to uh, you know share some insights that you've got, some wisdom that you've gained. Uh, talk about your business. Yeah. Talk about how you got there. So uh, yeah. opening question always is when you know. When somebody asks you, Emil, what do you do? Yeah. Uh, how do you yeah. answer that question these days? Well, we help leaders take the chance out of their culture to optimize their team's performance. Okay, simple as that. We believe that culture drives results because it's derived on the behaviors of the organization and the behaviors we accept and reward of each other. So if we drive the right and we get clear first on those behaviors that we want to be recognised as, that bring our values and our purpose to life, and then we build a really intentional system to help build trust, you know, over time and reward and challenge those behaviours, mm -hmm. then you're going to get the best out of your team, right? Mm -hmm. And we have a big saying in our work, if we focus on our behaviours, our relationships and our process, the scoreboard will take care of itself. Hmm. That would be uh, in line with, uh, number one, this is totally in line with my whole philosophy. You know, I think culture is so incredibly important. But, you know, yeah. back to you, if you focus on yourself where, you know, uh, I, I don't know if we talked about it. We, we, we maybe have talked about it in the past where uh, there's a book written by Jocko Wilnick called Extreme Ownership, where you just take yeah, responsibility for you. And hold yourself accountable for the standard of which you perform and the results that you get or don't, or don't get. Anyways, we won't go down that path just yet. Yeah. Uh, so give me a little bit of more background. When you talk about your business and what you're doing, you're working with teams. You know, what is a team for you? Is it? And I don't mean in terms of the size. I'm not trying to get to the size of your business, but yeah. we, we talk about that. I'm happy to. But I'm, I'm more around in the world of culture. Uh, we have culture of a team of three or two or uh, a team of 300 or 3,000. So give me some context when you talk about culture from your perspective in there, Emil. Yeah, look, I'm really lucky. My business partners are um, quite well-known Australians in the sport world in particular, Paul Ruse and Jared Murphy. Paul Ruse was a very famous Australian footballer turned revolutionary coach using our model to win championships with a, with a club, the Sydney Swans, that hadn't won one for 72 years. And then through that process, you know, really helped the business that Jared was running explode to the point where, you know, at a certain point in the Australian Football League, every club was using the process and the model. Right. It was a competitive disadvantage to not use this empowerment model that essentially helped teams create who they are and what they stood for, not just the coaches, right? Mm -hmm. It's a very much an empowerment model. And then building psychological safety for peers to give each other feedback. That's incredibly important because when we think about accountability, we often think about accountability that it happens to us when things aren't working well, where real accountability is what we give our mates because we don't want to let them down, mm. right? So luckily for me and my other business partner, Warren, we have these great, great guys. So our model actually started in pro sport. And then because of the success in sport, Jared morphed it into the corporate sector, which is where most of our work is today. We still work in, with sport in Australia, and we're luckily we're just opened up some conversations with the Raptors and the Blue Jays over here. So hopefully in the next 12 months or so, we'll be working with a pro club over here in, um, in North America where I'm based. Mm -hmm. um, and Ruzi's actually moved to California as well. So 
once we started winning championships in sport, I mean, such a, I mean, Australia is just this microcosm of sport, right? And it's 26 million people in a space nearly as big as Canada, right? Right. So it's this massive country town island. Yeah. So with our love of sport, um, the weather certainly helps us, that's for sure, but with the model working so well, the corporate sponsors sort of said, look, we need this, and we found that the same principles that drive a high-performing culture and environment in sport are very transferable, so we use them to help corporations have a competitive advantage. My background is, is, and particularly my wife is an Olympic mental performance coach and performance coach. So when we talk about culture, environment, when we talk about high performance, it's she, you know, she has that same thought process and, and she worked with many teams over the years in the world of hockey to begin with. And she worked with NHL hockey teams. But the point of that is, is that it's, it's only to say that it's interesting that teams, you know, sport actually is so applicable to building a yeah. great team corporately. And 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 a lot of times I hear people go, oh, you guys quit talking about hockey and football and all this mm-hmm. other stuff. I've never played sports. And I, I want to say, yeah. well, then listen closely because you really missed out. And you know, yeah. don't, don't make it wrong because you didn't play a sport. Understand that aside from maybe the bravado and all the things that go with sport, yeah. In behind that, in what you don't see is what goes on in the dressing room, what goes on with the management team, what goes on with the ownership team, and how that all trickles out. And it's all so yeah. applicable. I mean, I, I'm so on this page. You know, I really, really am happy to have this conversation with you, Dan. I want to really dig into yeah. it. Uh, but yeah. that's my thought. I'm sure that you've run across similar circumstances working corporately. You're going to have people that go, you know, this is like, I, I don't even know how to pick up a football. What are you guys talking about? So yeah. You, you yeah. Know, do you run into that as well? Yeah, we do. And we have many conversations about that. So if the group is not so sport-minded, we mm-hmm. might have to use, we'll give it context. And sure. I'll, I'll give you I'll give you sort of three things that, that everyone should be able to grasp as the key concepts that drives a high-performing team and culture and the dynamics of it. And then... Once we give that context, then we, we leave it there and mm-hmm. then we'll then share stories and maybe use metaphors about rock bands. You can't have 10 lead singers of a rock band mm-hmm. right, to make up a good team. you know. So one being probably most importantly, sport really understands it's all about the team. Mm-hmm. The defence, the mids, the attacks all need to know what each other's doing so we can play our role and support our mate to do the same. Mm-hmm. And there's also a shared, clear shared result. Like there's a scoreboard right there, okay? Yeah. So we know at any given time when we need to push and pull, okay, whereas a lot of businesses don't have clarity on their shared result, their target, mm-hmm. and they're very siloed, right, which right. is often why we get business, you know. Number two would be sport identifies and develops talent really well. Now, particularly in the Australian market where we don't have these exorbitant contracts you can't trade players and just go, right, that chess piece didn't mingle. Let's change the chemistry and take a chance on it. Mm-hmm. Back home in particular, we've got to develop our people, and that takes time, like a commitment. We talk a lot about trust and building trust, and there's the Covey model of character competency. But what we've come to realise is that there's a third C, and that's care, which is actually time, taking concerted intentional time to build stronger relationships with your teammates and practice real talk, those open, honest conversations about performance. 
So there's that piece as well, which I think everyone grasps a hold of, mm. and that factor of time, actually making time for your teammates. When we think about relationships, we often think about the client. He's a great salesperson. She's a great salesperson because she built great relationships. Our contention is, well, if we get it right internally, your customer service, your internal relationship becomes your external customer service. Mm -hmm. And then the third part would be review, review, review. (laughs) Sure. By virtue of having a game and then a game a few days later or in our world a week or so later, you know, we've got a review and then make some adjustments and do it again. So we really review sport quite well um, in games. And so then how do you bring those core concepts, knowing you can't spend eight hours in auditorium every other day, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. But you can, you can sit down with a mate for 15 minutes and go, hey, that presentation we did last Friday, what worked well? Where's our areas for growth? And what are we going to do differently next time? Mm-hmm. Boom, 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 boom. Grab the learning as a team, take it into action, and maybe do it again in three weeks' time after the next presentation or on a quarterly, some sort of scheduled structure. Because I tell you, mate, if I've had a dollar for every company we've worked with where they simply do an annual review and then they live Uh, a whole year and then they review again and the person gets the same feedback, there's no system to support them. And then worst case scenario, it's an anonymous 360 where some consultant gives you the information of what the team's saying about you. I don't know if there's a bigger thing to break trust than that. Yeah. So really being intentional around the way you review and making it a critical part of your metaphorical business season, if you will. You know, it's it's interesting, like this whole concept around culture, but I want to go, you know, in in where do you put in terms of your process and how you look at things, Emil? Where's the environment? Because you can you can talk culture all you want, but if you don't create the environment for that culture to thrive and to exist and to grow yeah. and to actually you know give the culture room to really expand and, and step into it, you have to be able to create that environment. From my point of view, and and I'm hearing yeah. that is in what you're saying. So where does it sit in your kind of scope of the work that you're doing and how you present that? If I can ask the question back, are you talking about the environment by which we operate our program or got it? So so when you so when you're sorry, when you're going into a client, whether that's a client yeah. of three or three thousand or whatever it is, yeah. I mean to create culture, you have to have you have to have they have to be able to create the environment for that culture to grow, for that culture to yeah. expand and yeah. to be open to it. Uh, so when you're looking at your process of working with your clients, how does environment yeah. fit into that conversation? Yeah, look, the first thing, you know, one of my mentors tells me, Emil, prescription without diagnosis is malpractice, mm-hmm. right? Shout mm-hmm. out to Hammer. So quite literally the beginning of any engagement with any team is diagnosing, like just getting in there and understanding what's the lay of the land now. Because, you know, one of our sayings internally is that most people do most things right most of the time. Mm-hmm. And even when we go into a really dysfunctional and fractured company that's at a one or two out of ten, which, you know, that's when we sometimes get the phone call and it's a quick minute to start yesterday. When you actually unpack it and you get people just to sit down and stop doing and just reflect on what's actually happening, that diagnostic process reveals that um, they're actually doing a lot good. Mm-hmm. They're just not catching it. Yeah. <laughs> right? So part of that first phase is to go, look, let's get another layer and understand what behaviours 
are we currently displaying that are holding us back? But then what are, what's the opposite? What are the ones that we're actually doing quite well? Mm. Especially for the companies a bit older and a bit more mature. They'll have structures, they'll have a culture, <laughs> right? Whether yeah, yeah. it was intentional or not, they'll have structures in place, albeit sometimes minimal next to nothing, or they'll have lots of structure that's impeding creativity and innovation. Mm-hmm. We've got to understand that. It might take, you know, three to four months to actually unpack. Sure. And our approach, though, is potentially a bit different than others in that, well, depending on the size of the company, it, it goes first to the executive team and then understand the process and that do that diagnostic phase together, right, and then work with the team. But as quickly as we can, once the leaders understand the process and the journey they're about to embark on, they experience building their culture code, they experience understanding individual differences, they now have the information uh, required to go, yep, we need this to go down into our company or, you know what, that's just, that's too much for us. We're not we're not open and willing to be vulnerable enough to have those conversations face-to-face. We're going to go elsewhere and, you know, maybe do the same thing over and over again and end up insane. <laughs> but yeah, it, to your question, it has to start with us not assuming anything and going through the process and identifying which which pieces of the house are, really good and we don't want to renovate and what parts of the house do we want to renovate and fix up because that needs that's where the work's required. You know, I, I find this conversation, for me, it's one of my highest values. And so it's a, it's a very interesting, intriguing conversation. You know, I've been in business 37 years. So, you know, mostly small teams, you know, as many as 50 yeah. or 60, and but often 15 to 25 or 40 kind of thing. But understanding nice. going through this process and defining, creating culture, is sometimes difficult. And I want to know from your point of view, uh, with your experience, my experience is, is that when you come in with a team, especially with team that's been around for a while, like, you know, you can have, let's say a, a team that's been, let's say they've been hanging around for 10 years, you know, yeah. coming in the office is like slipping on an old shoe. And then all of a sudden you're saying, yeah. no, we're going to give you some new shoes. And they go, fuck off. I'm not putting on any new shoes, right? The next thing you know, they're gone. And so there's yeah. resistance by management to let go because they're going, no, yeah. he's he's our top sales guy. Well, yeah. you know, he's got to go, you know, either put on the new shoes, fit in, enjoy yeah. the environment and the culture and be part of it, or you got to go. Yeah. And we will create space for somebody else to show up who's even better because we've got a more powerful culture and environment. So what's your experience with that? That's been my experience. And I've, I've lost some really uh, unfortunately, I lost some people, but in hindsight, they had to go, and it was the best thing ever. Yeah, you know, in sport, we call them coach killers, right? Yeah. They um, they're lethal because they they'll win you a game off their own boot or their own hands or whatever. You know, yet then you know, in the locker room or outside the training, whatever it might be, they don't live and exude the values and behaviors. So. Mm. I'm going to sort of, a lot of my answers may actually go back to sort of the same central point. I think one of the parts I love about our work is that we engage the team in the creation of the code. So the, quite physically, and this is, you know, Taruzzi's um, accolades, he was the, 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 the one coach in Australian sport in the early 2000s who was willing to take that opportunity to have a consultant come in and help him set up the culture because till that point, coaches manage the culture. Right. But mm-hmm. there was also still a coaching group and a playing group. And it was quite separated, particularly in, in Aussie Rules Footy, where really only became professional in sort of the 90s. So throughout his whole career, he was a, he had another job 
at times, right? So, you know, you might even go through the season and talk to the coach one-on-one four or five times. And if you were the best player, well, you know, maybe not a lot because you were doing good. Leave them alone. Mm -hmm. Dissecting the North American market here has been interesting because we see that particularly hockey is still back in that those A, where the coaches feel that they run the culture. So to get to the, the guts of it, in our process, the coach, the corporate leader, once they're taking the work to the team, are sitting next to their teammates. So you might have a person who's been at the company for two weeks and a person who's been there for 25 years. Mm-hmm. They're now having a conversation about who we are and what we stand for. And then the critical one is the behaviour piece is, well, what what behaviours do I want to see from you and I want you to hold me accountable and we help each other live them? So now we've got a bit of buying. So now everything that we do, every decision the team makes is by virtue of listening to the team first and then making decisions with the team. The smart leaders just then drive the system. They just commit to the reviews. They commit to using their values and behaviours to make decisions. And people, as Rusey loves to say and Jez, they'll act their way into your system or they'll act their way out. Right. That's why we named our program the Performance by Design System because we, you know, pride ourselves on helping organisations build their performance by design system, right? So eventually we become completely obsolete and then we just coach the leaders on driving the system. And there's no better example than than Rusey in our sport back home with a couple of clubs and 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 Jared's work in particular with a couple of you know really high performing championship teams over the journey. Yeah, I think you know. It, it, would you agree that you know lots of businesses, lots of leaders don't take the journey because it's not necessarily the easy journey to go on, at least not in the beginning. You know, it's not easy to travel that path and it can be a very difficult path to travel or a very challenging path to travel early on and feel, you know, really risky and, you know, I'm going to lose people or I'm going to lose clients and gosh, why are we changing this up? And, but yeah. do you find that as well? Yeah, mate. I mean, somewhere along the lines, these soft and hard skills, someone's termino- terminology is it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> incorrectly. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, think about what we deem as soft skills, sitting in the awkwardness of building relationships, admitting your mistakes, being vulnerable as a leader, having a face-to-face conversation with someone you don't get along with but they're a team member. You don't like them, they don't like you, but you kind of need to get along but you don't. You actually mm-hmm. choose to go around them. And yeah. and we call that soft, yet we call the hard skills hiding behind a computer screen and changing, adding a little zero just to fudge the numbers to make, you know, like mm. that's for me pretty easy and soft, right? So yeah. I think, you know, when I think about that, um, it really should be sort of human skills, I think, and technical skills, right? Um, and being humans, it's it's just messy, right? So. It is. But that's where that's the difference between, you know, uh, you know, it's one thing to call what do you, you know, how do you define a successful business? And everybody says, well, what's the bottom line? How's the top yeah. line? You know, are you profitable? Are you managing your operating costs? But I have to say that, you know, 
in spite of, you know, those measurables, which are also important because that's the survival of the business, you know, the quality and the culture, the environment, the way people show up, how do they show up and have fun, enjoy the work that they do? I mean, that all just permeates, it all ripples out into the, you know, it it, it touches everything, as you say, and it gives people also a quality of life because, you know, it's easy to throw, let's say, government under the bus because it's the most bureaucratic world where it's like check the box. And and I think you yeah. know, their people are designed to do that. You know, like they're just built to do that. And that's great. But also there's a lot of people that are going there and they're just putting in time to come out the other side. Now, I'm not and I, I want to be cautious not to trash government, yeah. but it, it is yeah. really one. That culture is very, very challenging and often. And that's a good example of, gosh, you know, you're just putting in time. Is that how you want to live your life? And and I think there's a, an important part of it where I know for myself with the teams that I have in my businesses, I'm always thinking about, are they enjoying it? You know, we just got off a call with one of our team and, you know, they're, you know, they're heading to the beach and, but that's perfect. Yeah. Love it. You know, yeah. but she was here and All she right. got us set up and made th- sure things were right. And so, you know, there's, there's that side of the equation as well, in terms of just quality of life, given the job yeah. that you're, you're working on is, the, are those conversations I'm assuming that you get into? Big time. I mean, it's challenging, right? Like mm-hmm. and my own journey is what actually got me into the work, right? And I've actually got me a little footy here to show you. So the the way I got into this work was um, I was lucky enough in my early days, I went to the University of Western Ontario um, Mm -hmm. as a kinesiology student for six months on the student exchange program. I wanted to go to California, Pat, when I first started uni and ended up in bloody London, Ontario in like January of 99. (laughs) Six feet full of snow. (laughs) I had this idea of being in California. I mucked that one up. But it was a great decision because at the end of the day, it's, it's brought me here and I've had a, a wonderful sort of life with this work and my other company. But through the journey, I was lucky enough to build an Aussie Rules football team in 2003 here in Etobicoke with my mates from Western. And I also, in 2003, um, shipped a bunch of Aussie Rules footballs over that were redundant from the league and went around to schools and taught kids how to play Aussie Rules football. But yeah. remember, day one. I remember day one, I um, meant to go to budget rent-a-car. I had my bag full of footies. I'm ready to rock and roll. It was a bound a hockey bag, of course, and it was about as tall as I was because it was filled with 30 of these balls. Yeah, yeah. And the, the lady behind the desk said, um, Mr. Studham, you're only 23. You have to be 25 to rent a car in Canada in 2003. <laughs> <laughs> I remember, like, you know, that one of those moments where you just never forget that image. You know, I look back at the bag and I went, well, what the fuck am I supposed to do with that thing, right? Yeah. So the, um, employed a couple of mates and we had to catch public transport to schools. It was a wicked year of living. I went home in the tub between my legs after like just, but we saw 11,200 kids in a, about 30 schools and 80 summer camps. So it was a really big growth experience for me. And then I was a school teacher for a number of years, which is, is also connects me to this work because the side shoot, when I became a school teacher, grade seven to nine, I had this experience where I could almost tell you the children who had parents that were at home, divorced, going through divorce, a parent worked too much, or the parents were connected and, you know, gave time to their children. Because a big thing for us at PBD is it's one thing to be high performing, but we need to do it in an inclusive and a healthy way mm-hmm. because too many 
high-performing numbers-driven companies are doing it in spite of their health, their relationships, their mental health, the loneliness that comes with building an environment that's not inclusive, that actually excludes people. It's a very slippery slope. Organically, as a person who loves people, when I then came back in 2008 to build this company, Aussie X, we put footy, cricket and netball. We added two more sports and we, we built everything around the Australian sort of culture, you know, good on you, mate, sure. and talk yeah, to yeah. kids like an Aussie and they loved it. Yeah. On that journey from 208 to 211, everything sort of got a bit out of hand and we went from five to 50 people really quickly. And I remember just thinking to myself, I don't know what I'm doing, mate. Like, i got no idea. And I had this habit of thought leadership was solving everyone's problems. And um, <laughs> Yeah, okay, got it. And I had the metaphorical sack of spuds, as Nancy Spotton loves it, of just piling onto my back. I couldn't have an honest conversation, Mr. Positivity, but I was quite literally taking the ball out of the player's hands and putting it in and then becoming out of integrity. Luckily, I'd followed Jared Murphy's career in sport. He'd moved to England. He married my drama teacher from my high school when my mum knew. Got him over and he helped us at Aussie X create this cultural foundation that became complete, again, me chills, a complete life of its own, mm-hmm. all wrapped around having an extraordinary impact on everyone we came in contact with, the, the, the kids, the teachers, the office ladies, the janitor, the parents. Everyone we touched, we wanted to have an extraordinary impact. So everything from the colour of our balls to the colour of our shirts, everything needed to pop and have like a, whoa, what's going on here? The accents, all that became part of it. I used to bleach my hair (laughs) lots just to look like an Aussie surfer, you know. So with Jared's tutelage, it took me out of this really dark place of just wanting to exit my own company, right? Like Mm -hmm. being alone amongst 50, 60 fun-loving young Australians partying and I'm sitting there going, I can't say what I really think, I don't know what I'm doing, and I can't ask them because they can't say that. And so then by Jared helping me through that process, we built this cultural foundation that just kept on sharing, practising feedback, catching the good to the point where two, three years later in one of our sessions the team kicked me out of the company, said, we think you should go do this work, this culture work and consulting. I'd been doing a bit of ad hoc work with some mates and it was the most, you know, confronting and enlightening experience, right? But it was the best because I think it got to a point where I'd led the team well enough to to drive the system and drive our extraordinary impact code and the behaviours where, and I always wanted this for, for, for the team, to the point where they felt like they owned the company. Right. And so when that happened, thankfully I went to Cogsy, my good mate was in the wedding, and said, mate, I don't know what I'm doing. And he goes, Dragon, isn't this what it's all about? You, you, this is it. This is what you strive to do day one we met. So I think we have a real responsibility as leaders to create an environment for our people to thrive because everyone turns up to work wanting to do a good job. They want to contribute. It's an innate biological need. No one goes to work in my 12, 15, well, 13 years doing this, no one turned up to work going to do a shit job, right? Mm-hmm. So as leaders, we've we've got a responsibility to listen to them, have them feel that they're showing up to work and that they matter and they, they're contributing to something that's worthwhile. And 
that drives me every single day because I see the impact on children, you know, sure. in schools, yeah. the parents being connected. Yeah. And I see and felt the impact on myself when I didn't know what I was doing. And thank God for Jez because, yeah, like, mate, it was it was full on, like sleeping on the on the office floor and just, you know, just physical, mental, emotional pain, right? Yeah, it's interesting. It's such, it's, I love that. You know, there's there's a lot of conversation that, you know, we could have around that, just working with young yeah. people. And I, and I love, you know, minor sports for that reason. You know, it's, it is really developmental for kids, and I think it's so important. But back to your mentor, which I think is very, very interesting. You know, there's no doubt that you have the passion and, you know, you had this passion for what you saw. And, you know, mm. recently, you know, relatively recently, I got to the real conclusion is that, we have, you know, when we can take our passion, and this is what your mentor did for you. I heard it in your story, which was he showed you how to turn your passion, which is about you, into your purpose, which is about others. And when you can take your passion and make it about others and then monetize it, you have hit it out of the park. And I think if yeah. leaders can understand that fundamental, and I compartmentalize it for context for people to really get it. And I and just think about where you were stuck. You were stuck with the passion that you had, and yeah. and but not really being able to connected to the purpose of making a difference in other people's lives. Your mentor helped you do that. And when you differentiated that, you got to monetize it. It's a beautiful thing. And that's a, it's an interesting, I guess it's just an interesting way to kind of form where you have come in business now, because it's really, you live that. Yeah. I can't, I get, I get a, a visceral physical experience mm -hmm. every time I share that. And yeah. it's funny you say that because it, I always say that my my pain became my purpose. Mm -hmm. I found my purpose through the pain of only wanting to create a great place to work and have an impact on the children that we work with, right? Yeah. Particularly the non-active, non-sporty kids. Our mm -hmm. our world wasn't about building superstar athletes. That's that's a, that's another person's job, sure. right? Yeah, we have a what's called a club participation model in Australia where. Everyone sort of gets to play for the town and there's different levels. So if you're not that great, you get to play. But in North America, by age 14, you're getting evaluated to make the school team. And if you don't make it, you don't get to play. I just, did, just thought that was wrong. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I built a business <laughs> around focusing on the kids that weren't the, the athletes, right? Yeah. But just used the crazy Aussie sports and the accent and crikey, mate, and good on you, mate, and all that sort of stuff mm -hmm. to engage them in, in that way. So I had all the right intentions, and I think a lot of leaders do. Mm -hmm. But there are there are structures and very important behaviors, behaviors that become habits mm -hmm. that you can learn, right, that you, irrespective of your personality profile, you can learn these tools and strategies and structures that allows you to thrive as an individual. I'm a high-energy, expressive, out-there kind of dude. There's introverted, analytical, process-driven people. Sure. There's extroverted, task-oriented, driver types, and there's caring, supportive, introverted, relationship-oriented types. We all play a role. We all lead from different, as we say, colour energies and mm -hmm. different intensity and inclinations and that. But irrespective of all of that, there's the there's, what I've learned is you can learn how to implement the right stuff that creates the environment, 
for the players to play and the coaches to coach. Like we have to in sport, right? Can't yes. jump on the field and take a pass, you know, as long as many coaches probably want to, they can't do it. Mm-hmm. We call that the player-coach syndrome in the corporate sector. So many leaders actually, hard of the time, when we start engaging, we actually realise the, the reason why leaders are burnt out and the players are disengaged is because the leaders are doing the player's job. I also see, and, and this is really, I, I just want to go on to another question here right away, but I want to leave yeah. with our audience, you know, our listeners, our viewers, you know, whichever you're kind of capturing this with, is that it doesn't really matter the size of your business. You know, if you're a, a one-man show, culture and environment starts with you, and then you grow yeah. into whatever that is that you're going to grow into. But it really is yeah. up to us as leaders to define that and not be reactive to it, not let our businesses define us, but us define our businesses and, and what it is that we stand for in the culture yeah. that we create for people. I want to go on to a different conversation and ask you about your experience because you had an experience. You appeared on Dragon's Den. And uh, tell us about how that came about and how you did and what was the impact of Dragon's Den because that's a cool deal. Who was on the show at the time? I I don't recall what season it is. I think six. But anyways, you know, tell us a little bit about that. Well, I was wicked. And it's it's very connected to everything we just talked about because – the way it turned out, we had a business partner at the time that had a mate in CBC. We put a video in. They said, yes, but next season. We said, right on, beautiful. We're about $250,000 in revenue or something really small at the time. We thought, great, one more year, maybe we're half a million now. Margins were good. So we got prepared for that. And I cannot even make this up, mate. We were getting coached by a guy who was in the back end of Tony Robbins's work who'd actually been on stage with him in his Wealth Mastery courses. So... This guy, Doug, was doing some coaching for us. And in one of our, these unique, crazy nights, we jumped in the drove to the St. Laurent River outside of Kingston, jumped in a dinghy in the middle of the night, <laughs> went to a mansion on an island in the middle of the river with 20 other people and did an e-speaker sort of boot camp. And the boot camp was how do you use learnings from the Robbins methodology to influence a crowd of people to then do the next thing you want them to do, which for Robbins was buy the next program and blah, blah, blah. Sure. We're at, the, at the 6 o'clock on the Sunday night, we get a phone call from our partner saying, Dragon's Den called us, someone pulled out, we can pitch 6 a.m. Wednesday morning. Wow. I can't even make this up, right? So I looked at Kayla at the time, business partner, and we went, okay, let's do it. Like, come on, let's just do it. Well, what well, well, better training. Ran back inside. Doug went, all right, let's move all the furniture. We're mimicking Dragon's Den. Let's use the model. Let's let's branch this out. Now, some people spend a year designing their pitch and all this sort of stuff. We had, like, what, Sunday night to Wednesday morning. And you got the best – you got one of the best in the world training you. you know? oh, it was sensational, <laughs> yeah. right? And there was a couple of nuggets in the work. Now, the difference being in this model, people aren't breaking your speech. Like this model was you get to speak to the crowd and you dictate everything. Yeah. But the principle still applied, right? So you can use frameworks that way. But because they were dragons, they could just butt in whenever they wanted so we get to the show, we've at, we're, in the, we're in the green room and we've had minimal sleep, right, because it's just been jam-packed. We've also had a day of work, Monday, Tuesday and so forth. We get there, we're knackered. So we put on ACDC in the green room and we get ourselves all pumped up. And as we're walking out the door, I'll never forget one of the other contestants sitting there said, leave some money for us. 
They must have been a bit intimidated by our, our antics. But we get out there, we've got Robert Hertjevic, Bruce, Arlene, Kevin O'Leary and Jim Treliving. And get to the dot. It's a really cool episode. And um, Arlene immediately says, looks at us and our guys, and she says, I'm in. And then I say, g'day, dragons, how you going sort of thing. And then she says, now I'm really in. So she, so that makes us feel pretty good. I'm in a pretty good state right now. <laughs> yeah. And so, look, long story short, we realised through the training that what we intuitively knew was get them into a really positive state and get them into our world as quickly as possible. Mm. So before they had a chance to... We got into the rigmarole of it. I just said, look, before, I did a little intro. Before we get going, we've got to get active. So, Jim, Bruce, up on your feet. Let's go. You're two captains. You're the kangaroos. You're the dingoes. Let's do it. <laughs> Pick a player. And we, we taught them the skills of, of hand pass and bouncing the ball. And Kevin O'Leary hit a ball off the batting scene in cricket. And by the time they sat down, we're probably 15, 20 minutes into the pitch. But now they're in our world, right? Mm-hmm. Because they're little kids again. Mm-hmm. And so then we use these tools and tactics, and one of the best lessons we learned through that process was, and you see this often in the show, and I'm probably cognizant to it because of the learning, but they're experts, right? We're yeah. these other Aussies who jumped off a boat and sort of tried to bring this sport to kids. If they said something or asked us a question or challenged us on something we didn't know, we didn't, we didn't bite back. We just went... Well, actually, we don't know the answer to that, but that's why we're here because you're the rock star dragons and we reckon you probably do. And we did that twice, right, where naturally your sort of instinct is to defend your business and go, no, we know what we're doing. Sure. And it worked an absolute treat. And then there's a couple of times, two times where Kevin O'Leary, you know, he gets, he sits there back, but then he gets perched, right? Like he gets on his little he seat. Steps forward, to, yeah, to yeah. Attack. And Kayla did it beautifully one time where, he diffused him, she diffused him, and he sort of went and then sort of sat back in his chair sort of thing. And it just built this wonderful rapport. The banter was fantastic. There was a point in the episode where Robert Herjavik wasn't getting any attention. I'm literally having a one-on-one conversation with Jim. Kayla's having a one-on-one with Arlene. Two guys from the back are having a chat with Kevin and Bruce. It was like a bar scene, Patrick. So Ke- Robert stands up and goes, guys, can we stop? Hey, hey. Everyone, we're shooting a show here. Can we all just <laughs> get back on track? These damn Aussies are taking us out. Off the, yeah, taking us into the wild. Sort of fist bump Jim and said, I'll, I'll catch up with you later, mate, sort of thing. And, yeah, the end of it was very, very powerful. Um, I shared a story of a, a young fellow that we were able to raise some money who moved to Australia from one of our programs in the, in the youth sort of disadvantaged area. He ended up going to the to the outback of Australia with an Aboriginal family, he, you know, uh, ate, ate goanna and kangaroo in the outback, which is an experience you, uh, not many people get to choose and it got me pretty emotional and connected me to the sort of the essence of the work and, yeah, the episode ended on a, on a really high note and, yeah, built a relationship with Jim and the, and the team at Boston Pizza and then, ironically enough, the first client that I sold to professionally for this work that I do today was Boston Pizza's national marketing team. Wow. And we helped them reconfigure their marketing structure. Jared came over from England and that was our first client. Like what a sort of home run to sort of hang your hat on. Yeah. 
and that really got me into the world with Jared's tutelage. And ironically enough, again, nine days before we went to air was the day that he did the first session with Aussie X. So I thank God for that because once we went on air, things got pretty hectic. But now I had the framework and the structure and the connection with the team to listen to them and make decisions with them and they had a voice. They didn't need me anymore and, you know, I kept on getting kicked out of meetings um, to get kicked out of the company and, like, unreal, like just unreal. That's so awesome. So I want to go back because, you know, something within the context of the show, you know, we talk about seemingly ordinary, achieving extraordinary. And, you know, I always go back because I want to, you know, I, I want to dig into a little bit about your kind of how you grew up, you know, to have this kind of a passion to have this kind of thought process around culture and supporting others and, you know, mm. like loving to work with young people. I mean, where does that come from for you? Where, and, and, and the entrepreneurial spirit that you have. Was your family, were your parents entrepreneurial, uh, siblings? What happened? How did you kind of, what was your journey yeah. as a young man growing up, Emil? Yeah, so I'm from a cool little town called Bonfaggy in the southeast corner of Australia's mainland. So the only thing south of us is Tasmania than Antarctica. <laughs> so I believe our town is um, Aboriginal for town of wind and rain. So mm -hmm. beautiful in the summer for the six to nine months, but the three months of winter, you know, it's, it's bloody cold. Mm -hmm. Dad was a um, and still is a builder, fantastic builder, builds yeah, very high um, standards. My father. Tried to do some similar work with him. Um, in the end, I was only allowed to paint because I couldn't put two pieces of wood together and I was sick of him breaking down everything I was putting together. So he taught me a good hard day's work and how to power nap. Power napping is very powerful in my life and he's very good at that. But also um, standards, you know, like do a good job and if, and if it's not up to scratch, Bloody pull it down and do it again. Mm. And he's quite physically done that to me a couple of times <laughs> and I've put things on the wrong way, thinking, I'm going to be right. He's like, well, I can oh. And then um, he's a bit of a rough and tumble kind of guy. He looks like um, Chuck Norris, my father. Sure? And his nickname, his nickname's Hooter. And he's, uh, yeah, he's a character. He's the, the guy that walks into the pub and the the, 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 the guys in the pub go, Hooter, like Norm from Cheers, <laughs> right? That's great. Uh, which is cool. And mum, Ada, she's Italian actually. So my hometown's unique. We had this big surgence of Italians from the First World War come over because there's a, a coal mine in my hometown. So um, she's born from two immigrants. Mum's just a, the most beautiful sort of uh, green energy, caring, nurturing mother, makes jewellery for everyone, fixes everyone's clothes. But also through my high school career, she was the integration aide of our town. So she looked after handicapped children. Mm. So on any given day, I would come home and I would, um, you know, hang out with Chris and Michelle and Melissa and I'd have to avoid Michelle trying to hit me and Melissa trying to bite me, like just kids with just very severe either physical, mental disabilities. But, you know, mum taught me compassion and um, that, um, you know, everyone's got something to offer, I think. I always get a much for my mum. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, I just, you just, on any given night, I'd just be, you know, wiping a 19-year-old's face or diaper, changing a diaper at age 12. Yeah. As someone of a 19, because that's what you just did. So I think the combination of those two um, makes me who I am, obviously, 
And then the um, because I'm from a country town and there's lots of grass. Yeah. By the time I could stand and push a lawnmower, I just started mowing everyone's lawn in the street. So I think by about 12, I had about 20 lawns that I would do on a week-to-week by quarterly basis. And, mate, you know, 20 bucks a lawn back then was quite a bit of money. That's a ton but of I'd dough. Walk, yeah. I'd walk to their house and mow their lawn and, you know, I just loved it. I pretended that I was the world champion lawnmower and just, you know, dream you <laughs> but, it, but, you know, isn't that something, right? It's like, you know, there's an interesting, I, I just shared this story you just reminded me of on a tangent. And and so a world champion lawnmower. So uh, my <laughs> wife, Stephanie, worked with an NHL, worked with many NHL players. And one of the players that she worked with was, he believed, you know, he was a second or third line player, but he was always, the team he was on at the time kept him on the fourth line. And she said to him, and he was really pissed about it. He was bitter about it. Like, I'm not a fourth line player. Why don't they have me on the second line? Why don't they have me playing on the third line? And she actually gave him a context for it. She says, I tell you what I want you to do. She says, I want you to be the best fourth line in the NHL. I want you to be the captain of your fourth line. I want you to lead that team to be the best. And, you know, she recontextualized for him. And and it was interesting. She had shared that story with me. And we happened to be watching a game at some point. and, And I'm listening to the commentator go oh here's this player they are without question the best fourth line in the league and you go that's so cool well he got traded and and you know the rest is history he went on to be a second line player for the rest of his career and you know which came with money and all the things that that does but the point is is that even in the context that you just shared you know you're mowing lawns there's no reason not to be the best in the world yeah. at what you do yeah. called mowing yeah. lawns. I love that. And, and that's such a that's such yeah. a mental state to have or a view of the world to have as a young man growing yeah. up. That's cool. Yeah, it was cool. It was all about the line. So I had tried to make the tire <laughs> hit the line of the previous line. <laughs> that's so great. And then I had these moves. <laughs> <laughs> that's well, that's fantastic. That's, I don't even think, you know, I think I had a CD warp, but that was too big to carry. Yeah, so anyway, yeah. you're right. I love that. I love that story too. That's fantastic. So tell me a little bit about where you see your business going in the future. I mean, you're still a young man. You're still got you know, a, a vision for your business goals. What's What do you think is, where do you want to take this to? Or what do you see as the gap that you want to fill in the world today? Yeah, it's a good question, isn't it? I mean, from a business perspective, we always got together and we've all, the great thing about our partnership group is we've all lived and experienced the system for our own and have got our own trials and tribulations to share. Was it funny enough, was a client of mine in a big marketing agency globally running the Melbourne, Singapore, Bangalore, Tokyo office from Melbourne. Mm-hmm. And he became a client and then he was just a very, um, bullet a gate, uh, lead from the front kind of leader, but not not the greatest interpersonal skills as he'll uh, he'll tell you. And so, I remember going through the process and going to my wife at the time. If if I can help Waza go from this high red energy and just become a little bit more green and caring and supportive and let the players play, you know, I said to her, I, th- I think I think I'm going to become really good at this. I think this is my chance to prove that I personally can do it and the, and the system that we have will work mm-hmm. to the point where we're in Boston at Fenway Park for a baseball game. 
And he says to me, he goes, I want to, I need to leave my company. I'm not values aligned. Going through this work, I've realized I'm not aligned to the company, mm. but I think I can sell what you guys do. So we became business partners. Wow. And ironically enough, he's also my one of my oldest best mates from high school and married my sister. Oh, so there you three, go. <laughs> right? And so not only was the challenge of him being the personality that he was and, and, and having great success leading the way he was, but in, again, in spite of his own health and mental well-being and connection to my sister and so forth, I'm really proud of his journey and, and what he's been able to do because he, like, he's just, it's unbelievable. Like, as I said before, irrespective of your cultural, personality, profile, whatever, you can be a great leader from any type of colour energy, if you will, if you put the right systems in place. And so he did, and now he's got another company he owns, he sort of runs our company as well, and the work that he does with his other company is just profound and you've got this team that just do anything for each other. It's just beautiful to watch. So first and foremost, philosophically as a as a unit, as an ownership group, and now with Carly, one of our other team members and a few others, we're very philosophically aligned at what we want to give and that's really to enable teams to practice real talk, to build deeper connections. And then that leads to better team performance, optimises the team's performance we share the workload and we live a more happier, inclusive, healthy and a high-performing um, state, which, which then leans into deeper connections with your children because you, the work that we do can be actually transferable to any group of people, mm-hmm. family, professional sport, amateur sport, large corp, two people start up, right? The same principles apply. So that's really important to us. Now, where we want to go with this thing, we build a technology to support what we do. So that really captures all the feedback that people give each other so we can track it and we can see how we're actually improving our behaviour that helps the betterment of the team. So in fact, behaviours that are driving performance and marrying with the results. And we're seeing really cool, a really cool impact of that in the early stages of the, of the software. And our vision for it, you know, look, we did set out early days to build to sell. That's still probably on our cards as far as a business strategy. I think it's smart to build a business to sell it. Sure. Even if you don't, <laughs> right? Yeah. But as it's morphing, you know, you start to think, well, maybe this journey's fun. Like, why stop? You know? Mm-hmm. So even if we do sell, I I would consider that I'd probably still stay in. Like, even asked you, know, what would you do with unlimited money? I'd probably do this. I'd probably. I'd probably continue, you know, mm-hmm. maybe do a bit more drumming, as you can see in the back, and do a bit more drawing and cartooning, which I like to do, and more time with my son and wife. But in essence, when you help people build stronger connections, I, I don't know if there's a better thing to do with your life, you know? I agree. You know, I, I, I joke that I'm on the Freedom 95 program because, you know, at this point in my life, I'm 63. I have no intentions of shutting down what I'm doing. I still no. love what I do. As long as I can have yeah. an impact, I know what my passion is. I definitely know what my purpose is. And at the end of the day, you know, what am I going to do? I love the journey, you know, and, and there's some outcomes and milestones along the way. 
but you know, I, that's, that's kind of where I'm at today. I don't know. Maybe that'll change in 10 years from now. Who yeah. knows? I want to go back to a comment or a, or a, I don't know what we would call it, but you use the term color of energy. I think it was that you said, yeah. so get, let's talk a little bit about that. And because yeah. off the cuff and, and I don't believe it is, but it sounds a little esoteric, but so let's, let's unpack that a little bit. And what does that mean? Yeah. Yeah, it does. It fires off my tongue pretty easily. So thanks for picking that up. So part of our work is, um, you know, first defining who we are and what we stand for, but then spending intentional time to understand each other at a deeper level in order to build stronger professional relationships, specifically with our teammates, right? Mm -hmm. Again, we all do all this sales training to build relationships with the client. Yet we treat the client like a king or a queen, then we come back to the team and we treat our mates with disrespect and, you know, like it doesn't make any sense. I've never found, we've never found a, a team where treat each other internally really well and then treat the client poorly, <laughs> right? Yeah. But we see the opposite quite a lot, which is sometimes why we get work. Mm-hmm. So in order to really deeply understand each other, it's important that we understand essentially our psychometric profile. And there's about, I think it's like the 250 or maybe, thousand, I don't know, uh, different tools from sure. well-known one, Myers-Briggs, DISC. Yeah. We love using insights discovery. Yeah. Um, it's color-generated. The reporting is really good anyway. The long story short is it helps us understand ourselves better so that we can then appreciate the gifts that others bring to the table. By virtue of strengths, which are different to skills, right, like a, a strength of mine is, is um, you know, meeting people and, and getting along really quite quickly. Like it's a, sure. I love it, right, it's a bit yeah. of a thing. Yet data entry into an Excel document, it's as much as I work on data entry and that type of work, I'll never, it'll never be a strength of mine. Right. Right? Yeah. So understanding that if you are positioned in a role that doesn't allow your essentially your colour energy to and those strengths that you you love to live in, you'll deplete a lot of neuro energy. You'll burn a lot of brain energy. When you know the brain's about four percent of our body weight, it uses up to thirty percent of our energy on any given day. Mm-hmm. So if I have to do a whole lot of blue work, as I sort of call it, the analytical process, the data entry, or you know, try and figure out a system, so to speak, as far as um, and sticking to the process, it, it kind of burns me out. Yeah. Whereas this type of work, working with people, sitting in that awkward silence, holding the safety in the room, I just love it. Mm-hmm. Working with children on a sports field, I get to the end of the day and I'm like, oh, bummer, it's over. <laughs> Yeah. So it's important we know that so that we put people in positions where they can thrive. Sometimes you've got the right person on your bus, but you've got them in the wrong seat. Sure. So the profiling world really helps people understand themselves and each other. So you can go grab a teammate and go, look, you really have, you've got a strong red energy. You drive and push the pace. We need a bit of that energy in this meeting. Mm-hmm. Can you just come in and give us a hand? Just like yeah. you would um, a tall player on a shorter player in a game of sport. If you get a mismatch, like, kick it to them. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So understanding that first as leaders and then setting your teams up for success, very, very powerful tool. Ray Dalio, I mean, he hangs his hat on understanding the depths of the, the psychometric profiling world is 
a huge part of his success. So uh, yeah, he. I know. mean, I, I've. Uh, I'm trying to think of uh, what the name of his book is. I've read it, but I've lost principles. Principles by Ray Dalio. Your next five moves by Patrick Bet David, and I'm a huge fan of Patrick Bet David. He's so freaking good, and uh, that book is really, really awesome. And he talks a lot about. Uh, Ray Dalio, actually, and what he's learned from Ray Dalio as well. And so these are all aspects of, you know, of really being clear on how to lead, how to drive your team, uh, how to measure the psychology of it, to your point. Ray really gets into it in a big way, actually, in a very, very surprising way, given how analytical he is. But I guess maybe that's not surprising because that's where he goes with it, right? He drives the bus hard, you know? Yeah. He's all about making the best decision, period. Period. Right? Yeah. That's that's you know, that's maybe his whole philosophy on life. Yes. The dot collector, the feet. That's just, I mean, some research showed that about 80% of new employees only last three months at Bridgewater because of that intense scrutiny of feedback and that. Mm. But at, he understands that deep core, if we're going to make the right decision, well, I need, we need to put people in positions where they can thrive, right? Like I'm. Never going to be an NBA basketball player, right? I'm six foot just, right? So if you want to become a professional athlete and you're five foot two, don't pick basketball. Yeah. Like your goal is to become a professional athlete. Put yourself in positions to thrive, right? I I mean, I've been very, very lucky. I've loved everything I've done from school teaching to this work to, to this work and then obviously work with Aussie X. Well, I, but having said that, having said that though, you know, there's a, there's a, there is a certain quality that you, I think, I believe that you have, which is you'll take anything that you're doing and make it awesome because that is, the, <laughs> that is your nature. Right. And, yeah, and not yeah. everybody is built that way, but it's interesting that stat that you said, I don't know if it's data-based or, or that you said like 80% of Bridgewater and what, it doesn't matter whether yeah. it's accurate, but it is interesting that even if it's 50%, you know, it, yeah. it and, and myself as a coach and, you know, Stephanie and I, my wife and I do some uh, self-discovery coaching where people are, you know, mindset mm-hmm. matters was a program that we did and shift and set on intent and which was turned out to be an acronym for setting honest intentions for transformational thinking or for transformation but the point of that is is that it is sometimes for me and it, and it would and and I want to hear from you I'm often surprised at how much people say they want to do the work they want to do that uh, that yeah. kind of self-discovery self-development work but they want to do it and not change because here's what I've discovered and this is an interesting conversation for me anyways and I hope our listeners get it but you know Emil do you not find that people don't want to change because the fallout can be so we talk about as leaders we make changes within our team and our team goes, no, nope, I'm out. Somebody on the team or a, a few people yeah. on the team. Like you just quoted a yeah. number from Bridgewater, like I'm out of here. Yeah. So, yeah. but if you do that in your life, then there is a risk of friends, family, peers, yeah. also looking at you, judging you. So then you're stuck. You're going, I hate my life or I don't, it's, I'm not being my best self, yes. but I don't want to change. I'm afraid to change all those conversations that come up, that self-talk, that negative self-talk. And then it becomes the integrity issue because you're not being true to yourself because you're afraid to yeah. be true to yourself because you're going to lose a friend that, yeah, they don't even know who you are really. What's your thoughts? Give me. So I know that's kind of a ramble, but I think it's an interesting, for me, it's an interesting conversation. Yeah. I'm sure you experience some level of that all of the time. Yeah. All, I mean, all the time in through the 
through the changes we embed with teams, but as as an individual, I think about it all the time. Like, yeah, look, so much to unpack there, isn't there? I know (laughs) there is. Maybe it's too deep to unpack, but it was just a a realization for people that, you know, how do you actually embrace to go to the next level means that you can't stay where you are. And the same person that the the same person of who you are, that got you to where you are, isn't going to be the same person that gets you to where you want to go. You actually will have to change. So breaking the habit of being yourself by Dr. Joe Dispenza is one of the, you know, the books of just, just the ability for him to put this, um, complex world of neuroscience and the way the brain works into this simple, format to understand as a pleb. He's brilliant. But quite literally, his research shows that by the age of around 35, we rinse and we have about 80,000 thoughts a day as a human, right? Mm-hmm. But by the age of 35 or so, we rinse and repeat up to 90% of those thoughts from yesterday. Wow. So we literally bring the past and bring it into the future. And we do it over and over and over again till it becomes a hardwired modus operandum. So the meditation process that he takes you through, and I've been working through it at the most, fantastic, is quite literally experiencing those four patterns of the person that you are and the behaviours that come with who you don't necessarily want to be or the behaviours you don't want and actually consciously thinking, no, break that. So, you know, neurons that fire together, wire together. So stop them wiring together and fire them somewhere else. With that comes actual physical and emotional pain. Mm. And one thing we now know, and it's been funny because the mantra of our organisation has been to define a high-performing team. It's one where everyone feels safe to have an open, honest conversation with each other. That was first formed in the late 90s. But only over the last 10, 15 years do we know through brain science that emotional and physical pain to the brain is the same. Right. So if we are leaders going into a room and we're just bulldozing, we're not asking questions, eliciting conversation and discussion by the team and creating an unsafe, non-inclusive, exclusive environment, that person, some of those people in that room are going, this person could hit me, right? But they're not going to, right? But the brain doesn't know anything different. So when we know that physical and emotional pain is the same, to change, there will come physical resistance, right? Sure. And we yearn for that. We, We actually want familiarity because familiarity creates safety, and that's exactly what we're here to do. Once we're born, we are procreated to be safe so we can do it again. Mm-hmm. So, yes, ch- with change comes a certain amount of pain. And in our line of work, yes, you may lose some teammates. Yeah. But uh, we it, would say, yeah, go. No, there's no, sir, I, I don't want to step over, the. you know, Joe Dispenza, you know, anybody who hasn't read or followed or heard of Joe Dispenza, you've, you've really, uh, I, I encourage you to uh, yeah. spend some time amazing. reading some of his stuff. He's an amazing, amazing cat for sure. Done some un- unbelievable work. Yeah, to close the loop on that's on the on the environment of the team, but, you know, there's one thing I've learned, and I've actually started to record them because it's becoming so apparent. Almost everything is the opposite, Pat. Mm-hmm. Like 
Oh, I don't want to. I, I I care for that person, so I can't give them honest feedback to their face. Right. We would say you don't care enough with, for the person, which is why you're having it elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Right. If if you want your team to step up and and be more proactive and show initiative, right? Yeah. And you're coming in, going, guys, speak up, tell me what you think, and and you know, becoming sort of overbearing, but you and you're not getting the best out of them. What's the opposite? Let them run the meeting. Right. Right? Yeah. Be your leader and, and flip the switch. Like everything's almost the bloody opposite. One of them that we see a lot of, oh, we can't let that person go. They've been really loyal. But they're, they become the what we call the lovable low performer. And now that person's actually living in, in a state of almost crisis. No one turns to work want to do a shit job. We're enabling the low performance as leaders the team's potentially talking about them and carrying them. So now they're pissed off with them. The gift will be to let them, give them the right feedback and the behaviour change you need, support to change, and then if they don't, let them leave and move on and find the tribe and the environment where they will thrive. Because it's not right to keep them, right? Yeah. But because we're wired for safety, we will rinse, repeat, and we'll take the safety over the uncertainty, right? Every time. And, yeah. And that uncertainty is where a lot of innovation and amazing stuff can come. So, honestly, the ones that win that culture, setting up the environment to perform, manage this beautiful, a certain, you're safe, but we're going to push you, Right. And that pendulum swings from supportive and caring behaviour to challenge and accountability. And those that manage that what we call performance pendulum mm-hmm. and understanding that at certain times in a sports team, that player's speed for that position is no longer the best player in that position, then they need to move on and find another tribe, another place where they can thrive, which Paddy McCord at Netflix speaks so beautifully about. Mm-hmm. That's actually the right thing to do. Holding on to them is actually not. And that story can transfer, I think, into other parts of your life from friends to the workplace at any given time. If you've outgrown the place and it's no longer making you better or you're making others better, this is just a harsh reality, I reckon, and that's just the way it really is. Yeah, and it is. Yeah, I think it. And I think from my point of view, I, I get that. And and but it can be either a harsh reality or it can just be the discovery and the awareness and the reality of what is. Understanding that if you, because in my world, I'm always thinking to myself, how do I always be? How do I keep being the best I can be? And man, I'm I'm really hard work. And you know, so I. But I've got to stay open to that. I'm not. You know, I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer. So I got to keep working at being the best I can be. It's a conscious thought. And you know, I'm I'm blessed to be surrounded by a team that we have these open dialogues, these open conversations where nobody takes shit personally. Number one, and number two, we're all supporting each other to be really awesome at what we do. And uh, it's just a great environment to be in. I want to leave you as you're. You know what? I don't want to leave. You. I want to I want to leave a quote for you and our listeners that I got this recently and it really really impacted me and it's kind of in line with what we're talking about who we are on a team and and change and self-discovery and 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 how do we support our team in being their best they can be and this was by a philosopher you may have heard this uh, Emil but it was by a philosopher by the name of I think his last name was Cooley and and it goes that 
to today I'm not what I th- who uh, today I'm not who I think I am. I'm not who you think I am. I am who I think you think I am. And I listen to that quote and I go, yes, that is so often. I'm going to say it again. Today, I'm not who I think I am. Today, I'm not who I think I am. I'm not who you think I am. I am who I think you think I am. (laughs) And you got to just kind of sit with that a little bit. And it is such a powerful quote. And I see it everywhere. And I've even seen where I am. I am that sometimes. Right. It's Uh, just such an interesting thing. So I leave with that. Emil, we got to start winding down. I mean, I could talk about this shit all day long and it's so powerful (laughs) and and you're great. I love the work you're doing and uh, I love how you show up and uh, very, very excited for where you're going in your business. But I uh, want to wind down with what I refer to as rapid fire questions, which are rarely rapid fire. But, uh, you know, I I do want to go with this, this direction here. So pay attention. Favorite book that you have read or that you gift? Do you have one? Probably Good to Great. Good to Great, yeah. Wonderful book. Yes. Oh, just the research. I got turned on to that book by one of the guys in the book. And uh, when I was at his place in California, it was great. iPhone or Android? Oh, iPhone. Oh, geez. Yeah, of course. By the <laughs> way, a, I do. But I'm both. I'm both. Be easy. I, okay. I, I got a couple guys on my team that are just like, you know, I, they drank the Kool-Aid and I'm going, okay, it's not that big a deal. Anyways, I have both. Favorite swear word. You're Aussie. What's your favorite swear word? Uh, well, actually, far canal. Like, that's my, that's, if you were to write a Canadian, it'd be F-A-R-K-E-N. <laughs> E double L with hyphens in the middle. I yeah, think it is. Yeah. That's my way of swearing, but getting away with it <laughs> sure. in Canada. Oh, can you know? <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, that, yeah. Love that one. Do you have a favorite inspirational quote? I don't really have a favorite, but I have one that resonated with me at a really pertinent time. It's by Carl Jung, who's actually the sort of godfather, if you will, sure. of psychometric profiling, right? Yeah. That loneliness is not by not essentially, I'm going to paraphrase, loneliness does not come by oneself by not being around other people. It comes from being unable to speak your truth to those that are important to you that find it inadmissible. Oh, love that. That's awesome. Right? I've not heard that one before, so that's very, yeah. very good. Love that. Yeah. Your room, your desk, or your car, Emil, what do you clean first? Room, desk, or car? Probably the desk. <laughs> desk. Okay, like a clean desk. Yeah. Okay. Do you have yeah. a favorite do you have a favorite tune or a favorite uh band? Midnight Oil. They're the um they're oh. basically the Beds are Burning, Peter Garrett, Robbie oh, Hurst, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, yeah. So yeah. Um they are um the Australian version of the tragically hip. Got it. Got it. Do you have a favorite movie? Uh, my mates would want me to say Shawshank Redemption. <laughs> yeah. <everyone's> like, <laughs> but it's actually Fight Club. Fight I Club. love the mm. dialogue in that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that was a great movie, by the Ooh. way. Yeah. Unbelievable. And, uh, Emil, today, what are you grateful for? I'm grateful for my family, my little boy Rio, and my wonderful wife. She's um, 
yeah, she lets them. She lets my madness run a bit, you know, but reins me in. You know, she's a fantastic barometer for for Rio and I. Rio's a mini version of me. So our next child, I've ordered the universe a girl with her um, personality. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Um, I'm grateful for my new beautiful house that we got to move into. Um, and I think I'm really just honestly grateful for um, my business partners. And, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how I, I've had a couple of jobs in my life that didn't work and I lasted, I think, yeah. three weeks and four days and that sort of stuff. But I'm very grateful that, you know, you get, I get to do stuff that matters. Um, and you don't know, I always used to say to the team at Aussie X, you don't know what you're doing, you don't know what impact you're having on these kids because they might go home and they might have played footy at Aussie X and gone, this is crazy, and then gone home to mum and dad and gone, mum, I think I want to get back into dance, Mm -hmm. you know. I think I want to get back into piano, you know, or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. You just don't. Just don't know what impact you're having. So show up. You know, like I think Michael Jordan had it right. Like he came to, he doesn't know people paying big money just to go to the Bulls just to watch him play. So I can't have an off night. You know, um, mm. there's something to be said for that. Yeah, there sure is. Yeah. If heaven exists, what do you want to hear God say when you get to the gates? Been waiting to meet you. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful. Looking forward, looking forward to having you here, mate. <laughs> <laughs> you light the place up. Awesome. Yeah. Emil Studham, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Pleasure, I am mate. incredibly grateful for uh, getting the opportunity to speak with you and having you join me on the cool. show. I'm always very grateful for the world that we live in and the fact that we are in uh, Canada. In spite of all the bullshit that seems to be happening these days, I'm still uh, always reminded of how amazing a place it is and uh, the amazing people that I work with. So, uh, Again, Emil, thanks so much for joining me on the show today. My pleasure, mate. Thank you for having me. Cheers. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. If you found value in the podcast, please take the time to rate and review and share with others. Share with your friends. As it is my goal to always improve and to provide the highest value for you, the listener, If you have any comments, suggestions, or questions you'd like answered, please email me at ceo at raincanada.com. That's ceo at reincanada.com. I look forward to hearing from you. And until next time, Patrick out.